Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zivi. I'm the host, Zivi Owens. I am an author. My latest is blank, pub date March 1st, a novel. I'm also a podcaster, obviously, a publisher, a bookstore owner, and so much more. If you love books, you're in the right place. In fact, we call it the Ziviverse, or really, the LA Times called it the Ziviverse, and we're going with it. Go to ZiviOwens.com to learn more, and follow me on Instagram at ZiviOwens. The following was a conversation held at Zivi's Bookshop, overheard at Zivi's Bookshop. It's between Megan Reardon-Jarvis, who is the author of The End of the Hour, which is a grief memoir, and it is a Zivi book, so we're very excited about that, and Hope Edelman, who is just the author of Motherless Daughters, but the ultimate grief counselor and expert in the world, basically. (laughs) Let me give you their bios as well. Megan Reardon Jarvis is a podcast host of Grief is My Side Hustle, two-time TEDx speaker, and psychotherapist specializing in trauma and grief and loss. After experiencing PTSD following the deaths of both of her parents, Jarvis founded Talking Point Partners to help employers address complex emotions such as grief in the workplace. Jarvis is currently at work on Can Anyone Tell Me Why? 25 Essential Questions About Grief and Loss, which publishes with Sounds True Media in 2024. Originally from New England, Jarvis currently lives in Maryland with her husband and their three children, where competing piles of Lego bricks and books cover most surfaces of their house. Hope Edelman is the internationally acclaimed author of eight nonfiction books. She's been on this podcast, by the way, including the bestsellers Motherless Daughters, Motherless Mothers, and the memoir The Possibility of Everything. Her newest book is The Aftergrief, Finding Your Way Along the Long Arc of Loss. She has lectured widely on the subjects of early mother loss and nonfiction writing in the U.S., Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and the UAE. 
Her articles and reviews have appeared in numerous publications, including the New York Times, the Chicago Tribune, the San Francisco Chronicle, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, Glamour, Child, Seventeen, Real Simple, Parents, Writer's Digest, and Self. And her original essays have appeared in many anthologies, including The Bitch in the House, The Bitch is Back, Behind the Bedroom Door, and Goodbye to All That. Her work has received a New York Times Notable Book of the Year designation and a Pushcart Prize for Creative Nonfiction. She can be found in Iowa City every July, teaching at the Iowa Summer Writing Festival. The rest of the year, she lives in Los Angeles, where she runs retreats, workshops, and online courses for motherless women. Welcome, Megan. Thank you. We are here today. We have gathered here today to um, celebrate Megan and the publication of her extraordinary memoir, End of the Hour. In addition to writing and coaching, I'm also a nonfiction writing instructor. I help people write memoirs. I developmentally coach. And I'm giving this my double stamp of approval. (laughs) Megan, I had no idea you were the writer that you are. I've known you as a therapist. I've known you as a colleague. But you're an incredible writer as well. So, and it's, it's an incredibly brave and honest book. Every page I thought, my God. She's really going for it. <laughs> you know, she's just, what was she thinking? She's all in here. Yeah. And so I was, I was wondering, I mean, this, if you can just start by giving us a little background. It's a story sure. for anyone who doesn't know. It is the story of a trauma therapist who experiences PTSD or reactivated PTSD from childhood. I'll let you explain the, the dynamics of it. And goes to into a treatment program herself. So can you just give us some background about how that came to be. Sure. Yeah. Well, first of all, there's so many writers in this audience. You know the surreal thing of having like a person that you deeply admire hold your book. So I could just sit here for a minute and just (laughs) please keep doing that. Yeah. And I have, I'm not tired of, you know, seeing the cover and seeing people hold it. It's really extraordinary. It's crazy to be here. So thank you everyone for coming. So yeah. So, so end of the hour. So end of the hour started as a therapeutic tool for me when I was in the same treatment facility that I send my clinical patients to for trauma. My dad died in 2017, having been diagnosed in 2016 with small cell cancer. And his death was predictable. And the way that I describe it is I participated in it. He knew he was dying. I knew he was dying. The image I use often is like it was little cups of grief. I would go see him on the weekend and he would be smaller and less able. And so I was learning and taking in the fact that he was dying. In 2019, I was on vacation with my mother, my kids, my crappy little dog at her house in Cape Cod. And my mom hated that dog. And my mom died suddenly in her sleep, unexpectedly, after a short illness. And, you know, the book really it just gives you the whole jam of it. You know, it, it explains what it was like to be somewhat of a caretaker. I'm a social worker. I was a medical social worker. I'm the closest thing my family has to a doctor. My dad spent a lot of time in the hospital. So when I was writing, I was writing every painful vignette of what it was like to be with him in his illness and feel helpless. And for the trauma therapists that are in the audience, and I can see you, trauma is born out of helplessness. We have these reactive states, fight, flight, freeze, and collapse. And when you can fight and when you can flee, you do better because the energy doesn't land inside of you. And when my mom died, the chapter is there for you to read, but I was 
ostensibly standing alone in a parking lot with a van full of children. And I couldn't do anything except let it land inside my system. And I had the sort of metacognition, right? Like the observing ego experience of seeing and beginning to feel and knowing this is going to be bad. What's happening? And, and having, you know, a couple of master's degrees, 20 of years experience and not being able to stop it. So a lo- the reason I wrote the book is that, A, there's so many grief therapists in this room, but we don't do enough to educate the general population about the realities of what grief really is, which is why memoir to me is so important. It's the story, it's our real life story of what that pain really looks like because we don't take a class. There's no class. Even in social work school, I didn't take a class. Mm. And most people still don't take classes. I went to social work school a few minutes ago. <laughs> so part, part of the reason that I wanted to write the book was to help people understand that even with all the education and the experience, Trauma kind of does what it does. It, yeah. it makes its own decisions. What definition of trauma do you use in yeah. your practice and in your everyday life? So trauma is any kind of difficult event. Some trauma therapists will tell you that it has to be life. It has to threaten your life. I actually don't believe that. Trauma is anything that lands inside your system and leaves a negative imprint. So the best example that I can say is like, COVID was a global trauma, but that doesn't mean we were all traumatized. Traumatized is the meaning and the impact that your system then makes of it. For some Mm -hmm. people, the global trauma of COVID was their best Oprah moment. They were living their best life after that. (laughs) They were not traumatized. And for other people, it left a tattooed imprint that their life was less than it was to begin with and that they began to feel and believe that life was less good than it was before COVID. So that's my, that's my definition. I think of trauma also as a negative event or a distressing event that exceeds your ability to cope or function on your own easily. So that's an important part. It, it overwhelms your central nervous system. So your brain's ability to cope and your body's ability to sort of manage the energy. So your central nervous system is just your spine and your brain. And different people have different central nervous systems, different operating systems, which is why two siblings can experience the same event. And one can be traumatized. That's right. And one can walk away from the trauma feeling that they've had a growth experience. Perhaps. Exactly right. 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 So it's the meaning that you make of it. It's it's what does the right. event then mean to you, which is why I I just don't think it has to be something that threatens your life. I think there are plenty of people out there that were, you know, traumatized by their lacrosse coach yelling at them. I, you know, yeah. I, I I've sat in the therapist chair long enough to know that trauma is what the meaning that your body makes of it. And that one person may experience that coach as very supportive and someone else goes to decades of therapy to get their voice out of their head. Thank you for clarifying that. It's the meaning your body makes of it, not necessarily the the story that you create in your mind. Yeah. And so in a sense, it's involuntary. Yeah. Right. And so that's sort of the the purpose of me writing the book is it's not about how well educated I am or how much experience I've had supporting other people is that I could see my body beginning. So what happened for me was my mom had had a short illness. She and I had been together for 10 days and we have a dance. We had a dance as a mother and daughter. My mom could be very caustic. She was very private. She didn't like you asking her questions about her health. Her health was in decline and 
initially she sort of let me ask about it. And then as it started, as she started to seem less well, she got angry. And that caused me, even in my adult age, to do what I would have done when I was 12, which was take several steps back. And then she died in her sleep. And so immediately when I knew that she died and, and there's a moment in the book. So the way that I came to understand that my mother died is that I had the sensation of water breaking, like when you're having a baby inside my stomach. And then, and this is what happens to me. I had a clear thought that came sort of from this side of my head that said she died. And I was in my minivan with kids and I called my, my husband who was back at the house where my mother was and said, I think my mom died and she had died. Mm. And he wouldn't tell me, which was insane because I just told him she died, but I was driving to get back to where they were. And he said, you have to pull over. And I was in Boston. And if anyone is from Boston, Boston's roads are insane. So I ended up like on this clover loop, you know, and then in a crazy parking lot. But in that moment in the parking lot, that thought came, which is it's your fault she died. And I knew because I have sat with so many clients that that kind of irrational thought becomes a a rumination if you don't interrupt it and that that rumination ends up causing its own kind of trauma. Right. Now you were diagnosed with PTSD. Yes. And a very significant event happened in your childhood, significant enough that it's the second chapter in the book. Yeah. 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 And it is the death of a neighbor's son or your friend's brother. Both, you know, yes. both things were true. And I'm really curious about, how that those dots connected to lead to PTSD in your adult life because you know the conversation around PTSD has changed a lot over yeah. the years 10 15 years ago losing or or witnessing not even witnessing the death of the neighbor but hearing about it secondhand and watching the responses of people around you might not have been considered a traumatic event for the people in that inner circle but that was very much you, as you wrote about in the book, an event that set you up for trauma, a trauma response later in life. Can you explain sort of how that happens and works and fell into place for you? Hope asks the best questions. So when I was nine, a teenager who we considered to be a cousin, right? Like all the extended, all the kids, I lived in a tiny little village in Massachusetts And, you know, everybody was at each other's houses on bikes, all that. So a 16-year-old went into the water. He did not come out. And everyone in the town was on the beach. No one noticed because you didn't watch 16-year-olds. You don't pay attention to them um, the way you do a three-year-old. And it happened on July 26th. It was a summer community. So the impact of this was utterly devastating to my family. My older brother found his friend in the water. I mean, it was, my mother was there when they pulled his body out. I mean, the the reverberations across my immediate family were devastating and they extended across this entire town only until August 22nd, when we then went back to where I spent three seasons out of my life, where no one knew that this had happened and no one ever talked about it again. So it was the biggest thing in the world. And then also not significant enough for anyone to even talk about. So I actually, when I was cleaning my parents' house after, during COVID, after my mother died, I found the report card from my fourth grade year. And every teacher talks about how angry I am Mm. and how disruptive I am. And my only memory of myself is like as a good people pleaser. So like here it is in writing. I mean, it was devastating. I spent hours crying over it. 
But in 1983, the understanding of what to do with children and bad things was to keep them separate. So every one of these adults thought they were doing the right thing. And I am significantly older now than they were at the time trying to manage this. So I have a lot of compassion for the impossibility of the situation that this entire town was put in. But we know a lot now. Yeah. So there's a study, which is called the ACEs study, which actually, it was, it was put together actually as an obesity study. But, it, but the intent was to look at the markers of things in childhood that lead to negative outcomes later in life. And Kaiser Permanente and NIH put it together. And one of the things, so the higher your ACEs score, the more likely you are to have certain negative outcomes, including PTSD. And the things that they're looking at are, were you raised in poverty? Did someone die in the home? Are there drugs? Is there abuse? You know, mental things illness. that, mental illness, things that you would consider difficult for a child. But what's pretty stunning is that children who are raised in those environments where those things exist go on to have the correlations of negative outcomes are pretty stunning. And so when you look at that, what you now know, and it's, you know, it's research-based, is that we need to support children who have those things going on in their lives. The interesting thing for me is I went to therapy for the very first time because my heart was so broken. I had been in a relationship that I thought was just going to be the end of all relationships. This was it. And I was summarily dumped and I was 26. And the reason I went was I got that, you know, when you're talking and you can see that the people are losing interest in what you're saying, right? So that was what was happening is I was still talking about this heartbreak and like just how could this have happened and let's go over the details again. And I had just moved to D.C. where I still live and these new friends were kind of like, let's go, let's get another drink. Like, let's change this. What movies have you seen? And I really, I was like, crap, if I don't figure this out, I can't figure out how to be more normal about a breakup. I'm not going to have any friends. So a colleague of mine at this think tank that I worked at handed me this note when she saw me like crying in the bathroom that had a therapist's number. And I was like, okay, these are the people that help you get over bad things. And in that very first therapy session, all I talked about was how my life was over, this relationship was over, nothing was ever going to be good. And at the end, that therapist said to me, did anything bad ever happen in your childhood? And I said, no, because I didn't even know to tell her that something bad had happened in my childhood. And she was sort of like, you know, we might talk about your family too. And I was like, they're perfect. They're not the problem. And, right? And then I went home and thought about it and came back and was like, you know, since you asked, actually, I don't think it has anything to do with anything, but this teenager died. And she then said, here's the reason I asked. Everything that you described, all the behaviors that you were describing are hallmarks of children who live through trauma. And then I cried about that for a month because I felt so abnormal in so many of my reactions to learn that like, A, that wasn't my fault. And B, there were other people like me who struggled in this same kind of positioning mm -hmm. was really comforting. It made me feel more normal in my abnormality, right? And so, you know, I went to therapy then for like 10 years and I thought twice a week and I thought I did it. I have worked through these issues. I, I, you know, I, I have five brothers and sisters, and at the time I had two parents, and every one of them went under the microscope, all the relationships, all the friendships, all the choices I had ever made, and I came out the other side in love with therapy, in love with the idea that you could have some agency over how you 
behaved and felt and thought in your life. And I really thought, this is it. I'm a therapist and I have figured everything out from my childhood. So it will never come and bite me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Again, how yeah. lucky you were to do that in your 20s. I work with women who, are not, who don't give themselves yes. permission or don't open themselves up to the possibility or don't feel they deserve it until they're in their 40s or 50s yeah. or 60s. I mean, it took me probably almost that long probably yeah. to 50 to really get it. So you got it early. Yeah. And then we're able to turn it around and use it to help other people. Well, and I definitely would not be married to my sweet husband if I didn't have a therapist because he was not at all. The second thing my husband said to me was that he was moving back to his home in England, like at the end of the summer. And I was like, perfect. We can date. Like that works out wonderfully. This won't be serious. And Every week I would go to my therapist and list all the problems with him, everything that he had done wrong, you know, <laughs> superficial, fundamental. And she would walk me to the door and say, and I'd say, so we have to break up. You understand. Yeah. I should probably just break up. She would say, absolutely, definitely break up with him. There's no reason why you shouldn't. I understand why you want to. But just because, you know, you could experiment here, you have someone you could talk to. Why don't you just tell him everything you just told me just to see what happens? And then I would say to him, he's not someone who had childhood trauma. My therapist told me to tell you all of these things, and then we're going to break up. <laughs> and his response would be like, that's so interesting. Your perspective is not one that I would have otherwise innately understood if you hadn't told me. And then I would say, well, I'm not so mad anymore. Maybe we don't. Let's wait a week. <laughs> but I, he definitely would not have. I we would not. We would not have made it if I didn't have someone to bounce my attachment and difficulty off of. Well, this book, for those of you who haven't read it yet, follows Megan from that childhood event through her twenties as she gets into therapy, through some of her training as a therapist. 
and then into the present, closer to the present day as she loses her parents and starts experiencing active PTSD and then goes to a treatment center. With young children at home, yeah. a month, not easy. Clients had to be reshuffled. And we go to the treatment center with her and we see what it's like to be there for that month. Now, anyone writing a memoir knows that you have to revisit certain times in your life and dial back even to the consciousness in a sense of who you were back then. And that can bring up a lot of really strong mm. emotions, especially when you're writing about grief and loss, the scenes of being at the beach with your mom, yeah. her starting to feel poorly, finding her, what happened next. How did you manage those emotions? Did Megan, the therapist, take over? Or was it Megan, the person who's lived yeah. through the trauma? And what kind of self-care did you do? That's a great question. Because my, my writing students talk about that all the time. Yeah. You know, how to manage the emotions when you're revisiting these distressing events in your past. I was just talking to Emma about this today. Emma Gray, who's another Zibby author, Patty Lynn, who's another Zibby author. Emma's book, The Last Love Note, is up here, and everyone should also buy that. Patty's book is also in here. But Emma and I were talking about the energy of grief and where it lands in the body. And I was telling her that I'm I have a writing class, which is called Process to Product, which is like the process of writing out trauma. And then how do you sort of polish it up to make it into a product that people can understand? And most of the writing that I did in the beginning really was just about the process, the process of taking the story that I didn't want to be inside my head out of my head and writing it down. And so sometimes that was writing it, you know, day after day, the same thing. But, but there is a bunch of data that tells us that if you can take your story and the details of it and write it out, it actually, your mind will release it. It's like making a list. You don't have to think about it all the time. So part of it was just writing it, being willing to write it. I was not a writer before this book. I hadn't written since high school. So the writing was, and I would wake up at four o'clock in the morning with sentences in my head. So I was not doing talk therapy. I was not doing somatic or body therapy. I was mostly do, you know, doing narrative therapy writing. But there were some scenes. There's a scene, the hardest, the hardest memories for me in the book are after my mom dies and we have the funeral, I write about and experienced a like losing of the energy inside my body. Mm. So I couldn't stand up. I couldn't hold my torso up. And that is really hard to remember because I can viscerally remember it, but probably for six months, I couldn't remember it at all. So I had editors who were working with me on the book who were like, so you need to get from Cape Cod back to DC. Can you write that scene? Mm. And I just couldn't write the scene because to me, it's the slow mechanism where my, where my body and my mind betray me, mm. right? One of the paradoxes of memoir writing, too, is that when we're in a trauma state, we're not storing memories yeah. like, like we normally do. So we can't retrieve them later yeah. like we normally would. And sometimes those are important pieces of the story. So what did you do? Did you reaccess the memory somehow or did you write around it? I did a whole bunch of things. So first of all, I have a podcast called Grief is My Side Hustle. Half of you have been on it. Thank you for being here. I talked to Dr. Lisa Shulman, who's a neurologist. And I said, as I do on the podcast, I'm like, this is just a personal question. Will you answer it? I said, what about 
I can't get these memories. And she said, just keep writing. You lived it. When your system trusts that you can handle whatever that was it's trying to protect you from, the memories will come back. And that's exactly, I just took that coaching Mm. I, and I leaned on her belief that that was true. And really I would go to bed and be like, I think I'm okay. I think it's okay. And I just woke up one morning and the whole, all the scenes were there. And then when that happened, my husband was a part of that. A psychiatrist friend was a part of that. My best friend was a part of that. So I asked them if I could tell them the story of what happened so that they could hold the narrative in case it went away again. I didn't trust myself to write it down. So I just Mm. said it out loud. And then I invited them to offer any details that they thought might be salient that I hadn't remembered. And it was very delicate. It was a very, very delicate sort of moment. And then, you know, there's in, in trauma, we have this thing called the window of tolerance, which is just sort of like how much energy distress can you tolerate? And I have become really good at staying at a five. So if 10 is I'm having a florid panic attack and, you know, zero is asleep, I get really careful about if I'm in a six or a seven backing off from whatever Mm. heat I have. And I explained that to my editor and said, like, there was a deadline and we were pushing and it was the holidays. And I was like, I'm at an eight when I wake up. I'm at an eight when I go to bed. I know it's the writing. I'm not going to make the deadline. And that was okay. So some of it was advocating. Some of it was writing. And I think some of it really was like the thing that I asked my clients to do, which is just lean on someone else's belief that it's going to be okay. Like to have the courage to let the story come back to you. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you for bringing that up because I want to just talk a little bit about general trauma in the population. You know, most people, I think, when we're talking about the trauma scale or the anxiety scale from zero to 10, baseline for most people is about a three or a four. Yeah. I mean, it's very, like you said, zero is asleep. Yeah. I mean, we have stress just from everyday life. Yeah. Stress to get in the car and get somewhere on time. Stress to get food on the table for our kids to eat, whatever it is. And there's a certain amount of optimal stress that keeps us going and helps us meet those deadlines. But when we're talking about trauma, the way that you described it earlier, it strikes me that most people growing up in this society will have experienced trauma. And that's a conversation that I don't think we're having in the larger population. What do you as a trauma therapist and someone who has struggled with it herself think the culture needs to do, can do, should do in order to accommodate that? Because 60 something percent of Americans will say they had at least one adverse childhood experience, one ACE before the age of 18. That's two thirds of Americans. Yeah. And th- that was before the list was expanded, too, to yeah. include poverty yeah. and community violence yeah. and systemic racism. Well, so, you know, Bessel van der Kolk, I'm sure his book is in here, The Body Keeps the Score, has sort of shifted how we talk about trauma in the general population. People have more knowledge and probably use the word more often than ever before. But, you know, if, if you said to me, I'm hungry... I think everyone in this room would assume at some point you were going to go eat something, probably sooner rather than later. If you are saying, I have trauma, there is also something that needs to happen. And that is not something that most people know what to do with. If you're hungry, you know what to do. If you have trauma, what do you do? 
how do you do it? What, what is it? So that when people ask, when we start talking in my sessions about trauma, I'm not being facetious. I gently sort of ask, and what have you done about it? How have you managed it? What are your coping mechanisms? I mean, you know, there are some people that, that their coping mechanisms are causing all kinds of trouble. And what they want to talk about is how they're coping. But what we, and I'm happy to talk about that. If you're drinking too much, we got to talk about it. But we can't not talk about that, that, that that's a kind of medication for something that no one has taught you how to otherwise manage. And so, again, part of the reason that I write the book, you know, the chapters, the inpatient chapters are some of my favorite. I mean, partly because the proudest thing I am in my life of, of anything is the fact that I checked myself into this facility. And the story that's not in the book, but I like to tell people is that the reason that I did that is that my mom had PTSD from when she watched this teenager, Chris, be pulled out of the water, which you could totally understand, but it was 1983. We were not calling it anything. And so I, in my adulthood, told her that's what she had. And she was super emotional thinking like, oh, there was a, there is a treatment. There wasn't a treatment then, but there is, there are treatments now that would help someone with PTSD. And part of what happened for me as my body was betraying me, as I was unable to regulate myself back into anything close to a five is I was downstairs. I threw my back out pretty epically and I was in the basement and the doorbell rang and my daughter answered the door and it was her best friend. And her best friend said, do you want to ride bikes? And I heard my daughter say, I think I should stay because my mom might need me. And I was like, oh no, <laughs> I got to make a phone call. So I was already debilitated. I was already in need probably for days. But what I really didn't want was to transfer the history of my trauma and my present trauma onto my child. That was like the sort of seminal moment. So when I'm talking to people about, hey, if you're hungry, do you go eat? How do you eat? There's a lot of, I've said this before, but one of the questions I ask as a threshold question to people, particularly men, is do you go to the bathroom when you need to go to the bathroom? And people look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, well, do you, if you have to pee, do you pee? Because people with trauma do not always get the body cues or do not respond to them. And I work with a lot of CEOs and they'll get a little smile like it's something they're proud of that they don't go to the bathroom for the whole day. And it's just a way of sort of like reminding ourselves that we live inside bodies and that those bodies need attention and that there's energy inside the bodies and that we have all these different ways that we separate from it. But if you identify as someone who has trauma, what I want to know is what are you doing to connect to the energy and tend to the energy? I mean, I live with PTSD. So last night I was like overly tired. I had a little flash of an image of my mom being dead. And I was like, oh, I gotta get out of bed and do the things because if I don't do the things to move that image through my mind, then two, three, four days from now, that it starts to activate mm, other well, distress. Can you share what some of the things are with us? Yeah. So bilateral stimulation, this is such a therapy, but bilateral stimulation, Simulation, just using both sides of your body. So I get out of bed and I cross box. 
and I kick. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but when you are overstimulated, when your brain is dysregulated, you have two sides of your brain. And it, what it basically means is one of them, think of it like two balloons, one of them is inflated too high. And so if you think about the middle of you as being the, scale, the tip to the scale, if you cross box, you can even that energy out. Mm. So three minutes of cross boxing nice. is what I do when I feel that kind of dysregulated. I mean, you, you and I use box breathing. That's also, mm -hmm. but generally I have to get the energy out in a kind of aggressive way wow. first before I can calm, before yeah. I can go to calm. So swimming would work. Swimming works. Would work. Yeah. You know what? I wish I'd taken up speed skating. That would be awesome. Also, <laughs> so bi Right? For bilateral <laughs> stimulation. I am not graceful knitting. enough. Does knitting do it? Yeah. So yeah, so I have I have a son who crochets when he feels anxious. That's yeah. So basically, you know, anything that uses both sides of your body, and there are treatments that do this. EMDR does it, and brain spotting does it. But yeah, so that's when I feel distressed, and it's always at night. You guys may know this, but anxiety increases as the sun goes down, and so my brain will start to, yeah. you know, get a little fiery. And so mm -hmm. it's almost always at night that I. I mean, my husband is like, "What are you doing?" <laughs> Like, just going to do some boxing. I'm just going to press press against the wall. He's like, okay, whatever you need. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.